Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. As we continue the series, The Bible Made Ridiculously Simple, this episode is called An Introduction to the New Testament. And what I intend to do in today's episode is to basically give everyone a brief overview of the intertestamental period and to paint a picture of the historical and social context in which the New Testament writers were writing and the context in which Jesus had his public ministry. So, in between the two testaments, in between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there was roughly speaking 425 years of prophetic silence, meaning there wasn't a prophet prophesying in the land. There were no Isaiahs, there were no Jeremiahs, there were no Malachi's. So in between the close of the Old Testament and the start of the New, this period was called the silent period. But although there may have been prophetic silence, there was not historical silence. In fact, I dare say that the period of history that begins in the New Testament is the most important part of all human history because that time is what all of history was created for. It was created for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, before we go forward, let's take a step back. When we were last in our series, we were talking about the Jews in Palestine when it was roughly the 5th century B.C., In the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, you had the people who were in Babylonian exile, who then returned to the Promised Land, who returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and then rebuild its walls. At the time, the Jews were living under the auspices of the Persians. So the first period we're going to talk about historically in between the Testaments is the Persian period, which lasted from roughly 450 B.C. to 330 B.C. So the Persian period was an era that lasted about 200 years after Nehemiah's time. The Persians essentially left the Jews alone. They allowed the Jewish people to carry on their religious observances and in general didn't bother them. In this time, the high priests were the ones who ruled the people and in the year 445 BC, the walls of Jerusalem were completed. The Persians were subsequently conquered in the year 330 BC by Alexander the Great. And he ushered in the Greek period, which lasted from 330 BC to the year 166 BC. So Alexander the Great was the one who conquered much of the known world during his time. And he was the one who was convinced that Greek culture was the key to unifying the entire world. Alexander had an idea, and that idea was called Hellenization. And Hellenization is essentially a fancy way of saying that Alexander the Great wanted to Greekify the entire world. He wanted to unify the world with one culture and with one language. As a result, he embarked upon an ambitious project of Hellenization so the world will be united in the image of Greece. Now, as a result of Hellenization, Koine Greek 
became a common language in the ancient world. And this historical fact is very important to remember because as a side effect of Alexander's ambitious plan of Hellenization, because Koine Greek became so common, the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. So, as a side effect of Hellenization, when the apostles and when the original missionaries spoke in Koine Greek, the result was that much of the ancient world could understand them. So in the original New Testament and when the original epistles were written in Greek, they were read by people who could properly understand and interpret what was then all of the letters that would subsequently become the pages of the New Testament. It's also important to know that the Greek conquest of the ancient world paved the way for the Septuagint. What the Septuagint is, it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and that was completed in roughly the year 250 BC. And the Septuagint, that quickly became the Bible for all Jews outside of Palestine because the Jews outside of Palestine in the ancient world no longer spoke or wrote Hebrew. What they wrote and spoke was Koine Greek. It's no coincidence then that the Septuagint was the early Bible of the first Christian churches. So again, the Greeks ruled Palestine from the year 330 to 166 BC. But near the end of Greek rule, in the year 175 BC, there was one Greek ruler that's worth mentioning. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, prior policies of Hellenization were gentle. They were voluntary. The Greeks didn't force Jews to Hellenize. They instead invited them to slowly adopt their culture over time. But what Antiochus Epiphanes did, he reversed prior policies of religious tolerance and instead enacted a policy of forced Hellenization, where he essentially forced Greek culture on the Jews in Palestine. As a result, Antiochus Epiphanes he outlawed Judaism, he ordered burning of the Torah, he required offerings of the Jews to the Greek god Zeus, he even erected a statue of Zeus in the Jewish temple. Under Antioch's Epiphanes, the observance of the Sabbath, the act of circumcision, or owning a copy of the scriptures, all were capital crimes and were subsequently punishable by death. Now the interesting thing is this, in response to forced Hellenization, there developed two different groups of people amongst the Jews in Palestine at the time. One were the pious, the righteous ones, or the Hasidim, and the other were the separated ones, or the Pharisees. If you're like me, and you live in and around New York City, you can see Hasidim in and around the city all the time. And this was a group, this was a sect, that separated themselves under the guise of forced Hellenization to preserve their identity and to preserve their culture. And the Pharisees now, or the separated ones, originally began as a people who were separating themselves from a culture in which a Greek worldview and a Greek way of life was being forced down their throats. As a result, the Pharisees were the ones 
who were zealous for the old ways, who were zealous for old traditions, and who were zealous for the Jewish covenant and the Mosaic law. They wanted to be so obedient to the Mosaic law that they wanted to establish a hedge, not only around themselves and the Greeks, but in and amongst their own people, because they saw the culture around them as one that was polluted by secularism and worldly ideology. Now, because the Pharisees were so zealous for Jewish law, they also enjoyed popular support amongst the people and actually developed a lot of sway in forming policies in and amongst the Jews. And it's important to note that there's only one sect of Jews that actually survived the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 AD, and those were the Pharisees. Modern Judaism is actually an extension of the Pharisees that existed thousands of years ago in Palestine. Now, what ended the Greek period was when Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig in the temple in Jerusalem. This sparked outrage, and as a result of that act, you had the Maccabean Revolt in the year 167 BC. So the Maccabean Revolt ushered in the Hasmodean period, which lasted from 166 BC to 63 BC. So, the Maccabean Revolt ended up being a 24-year war. And at the end of that 24-year war, in the year 142 BC, what now resulted was an independent Jewish state. You basically now had Jews that had liberated themselves from any foreign oppressors, and Palestine, as we think about it today, was ruled and governed only by Jewish people. And as a result of this liberation, there was a reopening and a rededication of the temple in Jerusalem. This rededication happened in the month of December, and what the Jews celebrate now every December in Hanukkah actually commemorates the rededication of the temple. The word Hanukkah actually derives from a Hebrew word that means to dedicate, and each and every December, the reason why they light a menorah with eight lights is as legend goes, when the temple was rededicated, miraculously, one day's supply of oil actually lasted eight days. This is how we get eight candles on a menorah during the celebration of Hanukkah. So under the leadership of Judas Maccabees, in Palestine, you had an independent Jewish state which existed from 142 BC for roughly speaking the next 80 years, when in the year 63 BC, the independent Jewish state was conquered by the Romans. Now the Roman period began in 63 BC, but there's no end date to the Roman period. This is because of the simple fact that when the Bible was finished being written at the end of Revelation, the Romans were still in power in Palestine in roughly the year 95 AD. So the general who conquered the Holy Land was called Pompey. And when he arrived in Jerusalem, he actually massacred priests who were serving in the temple and he desecrated the Holy of Holies by stepping into it. This, in many ways, set the tone for the Roman rule that would follow that was characterized by brutality and oppression. So the Jews had a deep-seated animosity to Roman rule, and the actions Pompey took when he conquered Palestine, these actions were something the Jews remembered and they could never forget, nor did they ever forgive. 
Now, under Roman rule, what they ended up doing was allowing Palestine to be governed by a vassal that was typically appointed by the emperor. And in the year 40 BC, the Romans appointed Herod the Great to be a local puppet king over the area of Palestine. And that's relevant simply because when Jesus was born in Palestine, Herod the Great was in power. So that gives everyone a snapshot of the historical developments that transpired during the silent years. But keep in mind as well, although I kept on referring to the Jews in Palestine, when Jesus was born and when Jesus entered into his public ministry, Jews, as a function of being conquered and exiled, had been scattered in every land and in every sea across the face of planet Earth. As a result, when we talk about the Jewish people at the start of the New Testament, a large group of them are located in and around Palestine, but they had disseminated to all four corners of the globe. And speaking more about social developments, there's one key group that factors prominently in the New Testament that we haven't talked about yet, and they are the Sadducees. These individuals were also known as the Temple Party. And of all the Jews that were living in Palestine, they were the ones that were the most persuaded, or they were the ones who were the most Greekified by Hellenization. And in many ways, the Sadducees, although they were very small in number, they were the ones who held the most political power. So in a sense, they often served as mediators in between the Roman political authorities and the common everyday Jewish people. So when the Sadducees now brought objections against Jesus, their objections were rooted not just in theology, they were also rooted in politics as well. And the reason for that is simple. Because Jesus gained in popularity throughout the course of his public ministry, his popularity and power actually posed a threat to the Sadducees, the ones who held a tremendous amount and a disproportionate amount of political sway. Now, if we take all of the history and the social context together, what we see is that when Jesus was born, he was born into a world where century after century, the Jews in Palestine had been conquered by one nation after another. Yes, they did have a roughly 80-year time span when they were an independent Jewish state, but the glory days of the Davidic kingdom, when the nation of Israel was unified and had a strong king on the throne, those days were long gone. And when the Jews looked around them, and when the Jews looked back to recent memory, all they would remember is oppression and violence at the hands of a foreign oppressor. So that now animated this deeply rooted Jewish ideal that tradition was important, and any radical change or any attempt of disruption of that tradition was viewed as a threat to be vanquished. And then on top of all of that, Considering the Jews' legacy of being oppressed by foreigners in Palestine, it's no wonder that the Jews fantasized about the Messiah being a conqueror, being a political ruler, being a sort of military force who would cast down and wipe away all foreign oppressors so the Messiah would be a liberator strictly in a political sense and restore the independent Jewish state. Still on top of that, 
when God finally does break his prophetic silence after 400 years, what he doesn't send is a natural general. What he does not send is a natural conqueror. The one who is the herald or the one who is the messenger that points everyone to Jesus Christ is John the Baptist. He is the one who is the opposite of political power, who withdraws into the desert, and as Isaiah says, is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. This is a guy who wore camel skins and ate locusts and wild honey. He was the exact opposite of a general or the idealized Messiah people had in their head. And John the Baptist pointed others to Jesus who didn't come to usher in a natural kingdom, but rather a spiritual kingdom. And on top of all of that, Jesus' birth mother was the Virgin Mary, and a teenager who was born in an out-of-the-way town that had a bad reputation. So this doesn't excuse the blindness of the people at the time, but this now pakes a contrast between the Messiah that the people wanted and the God-man that Jesus Christ truly and really is. So all of these historical and social developments set the stage for the New Testament and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And when I say the Gospel of Jesus Christ, I basically mean the good news of Jesus Christ. And Jesus' good news is that the Messiah is here and the path to redemption, the path to forgiveness of sins, the path to restoring a broken relationship with God the Father is here. And that path is not something that is achieved or earned by human works. It is accomplished solely and exclusively through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And how the New Testament opens is with the Gospels. And we have four Gospels or four Testaments of good news that open up our New Testament. Now, I have to make a comment on why there are four Gospels because in the Old Testament, we observe what's called the law of recapitulation, which is a very fancy way of saying that God repeats himself in order to draw our attention to what's important. So, for example, God gives his law and his instructions for godly living to the people. Well, he starts with it in the book of Exodus. God then repeats himself and goes over really pertinent, really important material in the book of Deuteronomy. In the books of First and Second Kings, you have a historical record of the nation of Israel from the standpoint of the throne, from the standpoint of political power, and then the two books that follow First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you have a recapitulation, or now God goes over those important or relevant happenings that occurred during First and Second Kings that has relevance from the perspective of the altar or has religious significance. The short synopsis of all of that is God likes to go back and repeat what he said before in order to re-emphasize things that are important. And essentially what the four Gospels do now, God in a sense doubles down on the law of recapitulation. So instead of saying something and then repeating it, he gives us four different perspectives on the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And the four Gospels that open up the New Testament are called the Synoptic Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all called the Synoptics. That word, of course, means seeing together, and each Gospel is characterized by the unique vantage point of the observer. 
So Matthew, for example, he was a disciple of Christ, he was a Jew, and he was a tax collector. He wrote his gospel and presents all the evidence that validates to fellow Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Mashiach that was prophesied about hundreds of years ago throughout the entire canon of the Old Testament. Mark was not a disciple, but he was a companion to the disciple Peter. His gospel is the shortest, and it speaks primarily to a Roman audience. Mark focuses on what Jesus did. He focuses on Jesus' actions, as well as all the miracles that he did, and he presents Jesus as the suffering servant. Luke was a Gentile, meaning he was not a Jew. He was also not a disciple, and his book was heavily researched from eyewitness accounts. Luke was a physician, and he was therefore very detail-oriented, and you get a lot of circumstantial details in Luke that you won't find in any other gospel. Luke primarily wrote to a Gentile audience and presented Jesus not only as a savior of the Jews, but as a universal Savior for all of humankind. The last gospel, the book of John, John was a disciple and he was a Jew. John's gospel primarily addresses the Greek-speaking world, and he goes into a lot of detail about the person of Jesus, not so much what Jesus did, but who Jesus is. And while the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are roughly speaking generally similar, John's gospel stands apart as very unique and very personal. Now, Although there is a gap of roughly 425 years chronologically between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, there is one person who forms a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, that book ends by saying that before the day of the Lord comes, a prophet in the spirit of Elijah will return. And in the New Testament, Jesus confirms for us that John the Baptist is that prophet. John the Baptist is that first messenger Malachi prophesied about. He was the one who was the voice crying in the wilderness that told the people repent. And he's the one who was the last prophet that basically prepared the way and prepared the people's hearts and minds for the arrival of Jesus Christ. And being the last prophet, John the Baptist then, although he appears in the New Testament, technically speaking, he is the last Old Testament prophet. His ministry was different in that while every other prophet, like Isaiah or Obadiah or Nahum, would look hundreds of years into the future and say, the Messiah is coming, John the Baptist is the only prophet who could point to the guy next to him and say, this is the Messiah, Jesus, the Messiah is here. And what's so ironic is that of all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only two Gospels give us a detail of Jesus Christ's birth narrative, but all four give us an account of the ministry of John the Baptist. And since John the Baptist is so important, he will be the figure that we begin with in the next episode. So that will end this episode. Our next two episodes are going to focus on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We're going to devote two entire episodes of the Bible Made Ridiculously Simple just on the person, the life, the death, the ministry, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. 
Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.